It is the end of the world, but never worry. The Golfers Show is here to kind of satisfy your golf withdrawals the best we can. I'm here in my bedroom. Michael's in his studio. How's this even happening? We don't know, but we're back and we're excited because today we're chatting to a top New Zealand pro, Luke Toomey. It's going to be good. The man himself, Luke Toomey, greetings. Greetings, greetings. Good to be aboard. First up, Luke, just want a huge thank you for uh, connecting us with Sir John Key. First of oh, all, just yeah. wanted to thank no, you for that, mate. That's awesome. You're very welcome. What was it? So, talk to us through how did you end up getting to know John Key? Uh, <laughs> New Zealand Open. Um, and I'd like to say that we got paired together at New Zealand Open, and I guess we did in a way, but um, they have the famous Saturday at Jack's Point, and those are for all who do not progress through to the weekend. And originally, you've you kind of got to you got to put your name in the hat, like before the tournament even starts, to say if you want to go and play this thing. And and no no golfer with an ego likes to say that they're they're going to put their name in the hat because we all believe that we're going to go and make the cut, or you know more or less be in contention to win the thing. Mm. And so I um, sort of arrogantly said, no, nah, I won't worry about the Saturday at Jacks. And then. After missing the cut by a million, I sort of walked off the last green with my tail between my legs going, oh, I could really do with that $500 now to pay my caddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so gave the guy who was organizing the day out at Jack's um, a call and uh, wishfully asked if there was any space, and, and he kindly said that he'd get me in the field. So I, I turned up to Jack's the next day. You know, and and I I, I I do know that there's they're going to have some sort of marquee groups out there, and because I was kind of last in, and I certainly wasn't one of the the I guess the feature players at the time that, that had missed the cut, um, I didn't have any ex- expectations as to who I'd be playing with, and um, obviously these marquee group groups go off the number one tee, and I'm kind of everyone's names are on on golf carts starting from 18 going backwards and. I'm sort of going further and further down this car path and I can't see my name and I'm like, surely I'm going to pop up somewhere. And then I see my name on the number one cart and I'm going, what the heck is happening here? And then underneath my name, I see John Key and then in the cart next to me, I've got Sir Bob Charles, go to Ishi, who now is the, always the son of the owners of Millbrook. Yeah, and in the other cart was, oh, I forget his name. Um, sorry. Uh, Kayla, Peter Phillips, um, Peter Phillips, who is in the royal family. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, um, so that's how that came about, which is absolutely absurd, to be fair. And honestly, we had the greatest day as well. And uh, as you would have found out during the podcast, Sir John is just an absolute legend. Yeah, he's he's a, such a, a unique man. He's very Kiwi, um, but it's easy for, to forget when you're talking to him that this man really is, you know, he was at the top of power. And the way he sort of bandies about these sort of huge references and these sort of casual name drops that I know he's not doing to try and seem great, but it's just his reality. It's just, he's, it's very strange talking to that man. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of, I'm sure you'll forgive me for saying this, but he's, he's kind of, yeah... Your, your nerdy uncle that doesn't quite get it, but is just a legend. Who yeah. <laughs> doesn't yeah. quite get it, but works for Comcast, ran the country, and you know, <laughs> is a member at Augusta. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. an absolute weapon. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, 
he is he's a cool guy he's a, he's a legend and um certainly wasn't shy in in in, in sharing his knowledge which was really cool and and um, a few anecdotes and actually got into the ponytail yarn as well, which was quite hilarious, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's not for me to share anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So with, um, when it comes to playing partners and stuff like that, you hear lots of sort of anecdotes around, around pros getting, getting stuck in pro-ams, um, and how pro-ams can really be a bit of a grind. Is that the case in your uh, experience? In my experience? No, I've been really fortunate. I think, um, with, uh, the, the the people I've been paired with, and I think proams are what you want them to be. To be fair, it's easy to fall into that that um, that trap or that mentality. But every time I've had a stretch of proams, I've really had a clear purpose of what I wanted that event to be, and that was. And it's often building for for something bigger and better later in the season. So the, most of the proams I've played, um, I think, have have served a purpose. And it's a great chance to meet some really cool people as well. You've got to remember that the days, pro-am days, is not just about golfers. They're about all of the people that are involved with golf who simply have a passion for golf. And to be honest, a, a lot of the time I walk away more interested in, in what the other person was doing than my own golf. So don't get me wrong, that can be trying at times, especially if you get stuck with a group of 25 handicappers. But they are... As I say, yeah, they they certainly have a, a they can serve a bigger purpose if if you want them to. I remember having a chat to Josh Gary a while back, and hopefully you won't mind me saying this. I asked him, I was like, you know, the pro am grind. You hear what you hear, and and that's a great perspective you have there. He was saying that actually the most difficult people to navigate in a pro am are the four handicappers that are trying to beat you and think they will. Oh yeah, yeah. No, he's I I I'll agree with him there. There's always a single finger handicapper that's you know kind of a big fish in a small pond within his own golf club. And you, you know that, um, I guess, people have gone to him for advice within the club and all of a sudden he thinks that he knows better than you do and um, yeah. is giving he'll give you his two cents worth on how you think your career should go. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> which, uh, which is always interesting. To be honest, the, the, the question that gets me the most in a pro-am is, so, Luke, do you make a living? <laughs> I, it's it's unbelievable how often as pros we get asked that question I imagine mean, asking an accountant that so you get in cash have, yeah exactly um i find it really bizarre yeah some of the answers that you hear guys <laughs> share is pretty hilarious because we all get sick of it but i've heard pros turn around and go oh yeah mate just absolutely killing it hence why i'm here <laughs> 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 um, yeah, no, it's uh, they. You get some odd questions, but yeah, I think I think more than anything, I guess people are just curious because you know, what we do isn't you know sort of run of the mill. So, mm. uh, fair play to them for having the courage, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, a few episodes back, we we're talking to Ryan Fox and sort of asked him about how he found the transition to pro. So, see, I don't want to say the word easy, but he said it was something he was comfortable with because um, he found playing for money not really any different. It didn't affect him emotionally. How did you find going from dominating the amateur scene with, you know, without money on the line to then all of a sudden you're playing for cash? What did that do to you? Yeah. I, um, I, I listened to that podcast by the way. It was a phenomenal po- podcast. Well done gents. Um, Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I guess what I got from that was uh, Foxy more than anything, because of the way that he practiced and played, he just, it, the transition wasn't so different for him. Um, and I think he was bang on and he did a lot of things so well as an amateur that a lot of us, I think don't get quite right. 
in the sense that when we do turn pro, we almost feel like we have to reinvent the wheel again. Whereas, um, and it's, I, it's exactly what Foxy said, we, you, you were good enough to get there in the first place. So, you know, why not we just refine what's already there and what's already good? I think that I was fortunate in the sense that I had a similar mentality. I've probably been a little bit more on the golf nerdy side than, say, Foxy, someone like Foxy. Um, I've been, I'm, I'm always, I'm super into knowing how everything works, you know. Like, I, I want to take a clock apart and, and see what makes the hands go around. Um, and that's the same, that's how I operate just as a human being. So I've never been afraid to kind of really go inside what makes Luke, Luke. And in that sense, the the, the developmental part wasn't um, a huge shock um, when I turned pro, and that and that, that was a, a good thing. Um, I, I've always been in a state of wanting to improve me, I guess. Mm. So throwing money into the mix, you, you remained okay with that? Yeah, no, that part was probably quite new. I knew that, I mean, I wasn't oblivious to the fact that things were going to be different and that I didn't have you know, a safety net underneath me, um, so to speak. But I think in a way I've always had this blind faith that I would find a way kind of no matter the circumstance. And that's exactly kind of what's kind of happened really, I guess, when I look at it um, on a blank sheet of paper. I, When I turned pro, I did this sort of first three or four months on my own. And that, that was actually crazy. That was unbelievable character building. I, I had no money really and – I was kind of playing week to week going, I have to earn X amount of dollars in order to be able to afford to fly to the next event, which was, I mean, that's pretty crazy. And I say, I actually look, I look back at that now and go, Oh my gosh, what an idiot. (laughs) 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 That's just being unprepared more than anything. But to be fair, I didn't really have any other choice. I've I've never, uh, I certainly haven't come from, from money and I've certainly understood the value of every dollar. So that was kind of just the situation that I was in at the time. And then I was fortunate enough to meet somebody um, who was willing to help out, and, and that went for 12 months. And I happened to have a half-decent season in that year as well. So that sort of went for the best part of two years and then sort of found myself in a similar situation as I did when I started, and that was sort of back as square one with with no real cash. But as you know, you when you're a sort of fighter backed up and in, in against the ropes, you've got two options and that's either fall over or start swinging. So, and my mm. mentality, I guess is always to start swinging. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's a cool perspective because um, I remember a while back we were, we were chatting about something and, and you said that what you kind of have learnt uh, through this whole process was that you don't need money to make you happy, but you definitely need money to do what you want to do. And that was yeah. a real nice distinction for you. Yeah, we, we, we live in, a, in an interesting world where, uh, and certainly to live a fulfilling life, then the the idea of money almost has to be, you know, thrown out the window. But it's just one of those things that as a business, um, and that's what we are as golfers, we're, um, we're sole traders basically. As a business, we need it in order to function and allow us to chase the dreams that we want to chase. So. You certainly can't be silly in the sense that, or and ignore it. But yeah, you, I mean, you, you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do in order to allow yourself to do these things as well. How how hard is it, Luke, to actually ask for help and support when you need it, buddy? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's probably my least favorite part of the job. To be fair, I, I hate it. <laughs> mm. um, 
I you do your best, I think, to do all the things you can right, um, so it makes that part easier. And hopefully, you're in a place where you don't have to ask. But ironically, when you're playing good, people want to help you, and when you're playing good, you don't actually need that help. And vice versa, when you're not playing good and you do need that cash people are less reluctant to help <laughs> it's kind of like it's so strange that the ceo gets the car park and you're like mate you can pay for a park you're rich as hell yeah, yeah exactly it's exactly the same thing yeah no to answer your question michael I, I don't enjoy asking for money at all but yeah all i can do is, is the best that i can and i guess i mean yeah if if you if you do ultimately ask and and the person says no then you're in no different place uh before that than you were before you started so may as well do what you can and then shoot your load and see what happens. Yeah. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering. <laughs> okay. Okay. That caught up with me there, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. There's like a five second delay in it. Oh, we just said yeah. that. Good to see you've matured as you've got older. <laughs> you know, like a lot of careers where it's sort of feast or famine, I often wonder, uh, people in your position, is there any, any organization, anybody out there that sort of teaches you how to manage the money side of things for those you know sort of rainy days that always get talked about like now for example um I, I, yes yeah, so i not so before i turned pro I'd, I'd probably say no i think that's something that we could probably do better um as a high performance unit i think is in order to prepare guys for what it actually looks like to be to be a pro to be a business i mean i, I didn't even really know how to pay tax so that being said, no. But I have been fortunate to meet some people that have certainly helped in that area as I've kind of got older and, and uglier and learned how to deal with all that sort of thing. But, yeah, no, I, I definitely think it's something that we could do better for sure. You spoke about earlier there, Luke, your uh, your, your dream, dreams you want to achieve. Now, I know yeah. you've worked closely with David Galbraith over the years, the, the great New Zealand sports psychologist. And, yeah. um and one of the things I understand that he gets you to do is identify an impossible dream, an impossible dream that scares you to say out loud. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what what was yours and has it evolved since you've been out in the pro world for some time now? Well, that's a great question. My, my impossible dream, so to speak, is actually still the same. Um, and to say it out loud is still frightening and for that fear of judgment, I guess. But, I mean, I would, I would love to... To, I love the idea, certainly, of, of winning each of the four majors. Only five people have done that in the world. So, I mean, you know, that is just, I guess, the pinnacle of golf. When I was young and when and when I wrote that down, it was, you know, I guess my identity was completely wrapped up in whether I achieved that or not. I guess I think as I've got a little bit older and wiser and been fortunate enough to experience a few things that kind of have broadened my idea of what a fulfilling life is, I think that I I still, you know, truly, madly, deeply want to achieve that, but I don't think my identity has anything to do with whether I um, put on a green jacket or not, so to speak. Mm, so that that so how has the dream evolved? And is the dream still the exact same now with that the, new perspective? The dream is still the exact same, but my identity is just removed from that. Mm. I think the the old the the purpose of that serves a. Uh, a more humanitarian um, purpose or goal, I think. I would love to be able to give it back to the game in some way. I, I'm not completely sure how what how, what that's going to be or how that's going to look, but I think what what gets me up in the morning is is uh, the what is beyond golf, 
and and what um, drives my training and and um, that sort of desire to learn more about my own golf is is still that those illustrious four majors. What has been the sweetest taste you've got from golf so far as a pro? <laughs> Um, I would have to say, uh, winning at Karis, uh, winning the, <coughs> the Taronga Open last year was, was really special. I had a bit of a slump, I think, for the best part of about 18 months for, from, well, how long would it have been? Uh, the middle of 2018, uh, right through to the, well, middle of last year, so 12 months. I played horrendous golf for 12 months and, that kind of sent me on a bit of a, um, like an internal journey, I guess you would call it. Um, there was certainly a bit of uh, self-discovery among that, um, which was great. It was what I needed at the time, um, in hindsight. And when, I, in the midst of that uh, struggle, I, I had uh, Chris McAlpine um, from Tauranga basically just ask what my situation was. He knew I wasn't traveling a whole lot. Um, and I told him uh, openly and honestly that basically a that sort of exhausted all my financial resources and I was a little stuck. And he basically just looked at me and said, oh, mate, you just, you know, you're far too good a player to, to just sit here. So let's see if we can make something happen. And uh, he got me involved in um, a lot of the midweeks just with uh, the, the the members of the club. I started playing with the Thursday men group and sort of long story short, those guys became invested in, um, and what I was experiencing at the time, and and then they ultimately got some funding together for me to go back and play, which was, I mean, I, obviously I, don't, I probably don't need to explain what that meant to me at the time. And then about a month after that, after my first trip back to China, I came home and uh, I played our home Charles Tour event um, at Tauranga. And it had been my, obviously, goal and dream right from the word go to, to try and win at home for them. And I did, and it was, uh, it, was, it was really special, man. It was cool. How many shots did you win that by? Uh, eight, I think. I, I'm not, <laughs> not much sure. I think eight, yeah. Yeah, that is sick, man. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was really cool, man. Yeah, that, that's something that, you know, even, even if I do win each of those four majors, that, that Charles Tour win – will still be right up there, I think. It, it was just such a – it's one of those things that if I was to write a book, it would be that uh, that, that turning point chapter, I think. Mm, that is that is lovely, lovely stuff. And when you went through that slump in China, I hope you don't mind me saying, but I know you did lose your funding or, or yep. your backing or the backing ended or whatever the, the way you'd like to phrase that. Yep. Uh, you then went back and worked on the bar at Mount Wanganui Golf Club. Is that correct? Yep, yep. correct. Can you talk through that experience of, you know, that would have really challenged your identity because, you know, people, you know what people think of you. They can tell you're a very professional man, you're very uh, insightful and you work really hard and you're a hell of a golfer. But there you are pouring drinks for people at a golf club. What was that like? Yeah, (laughs) it was grounding, I guess. Do you know, I... When I when I tell these stories out, out loud, that it, it sounds as if you know this time in my life was like an immense struggle, but I have to be honest. At the time, I never never sort of once, you know, felt like a victim or um, felt like a poor me as such. It was just I was just doing, I was going through the motions of of what had to be done in order for me to get back and and play because that's all I really wanted to do. So none of this actually felt like a struggle, and I just want to make that clear because. Yeah, I just I just never really felt like 
I was owed anything as such. It was merely just another step in the process. But yeah, so at the time, I, among this kind of development of self, I guess, there are a few things I had to address, and, and part of that was ego. And what better way for me was there to kind of silence that by going back and doing something that I felt like I, you know, was beyond, I guess, at the time, which is, you know, sounds so entitled when I say that out loud, but I mean, that's how my mindset was then. And plus this thing was, was earning me money. It was, it was a way of me paying rent. So it was a win-win on all fronts. Um, and yeah, within, you know, a few days of working there, I'd made some really cool friends and met some cool people and the people at the club, I guess, took me in with open arms and, and they were great. So it was it was a great experience, man. It was cool. That's great because it could have so easily. You, I I can think of a handful of people who would not have managed that situation very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's you, we can never judge. I guess like you, you never know what's going on on the inside of somebody. So, I mean, yeah, well, I get, I would I probably would have never thought that of myself. You know, two years prior to that, and and there I was in the sort of end of last year learning how to just be a half-decent human again. Wow. <laughs> Far out. Have you got anything you want to throw there, Michael? Well, yeah, Luke, so you've you've got the look. You, you've got the talent, clearly. Your friends are questionable, Andy. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Andrew's a, he's a tough man to deal with. I feel for you on the business front. <laughs> so given all that, have you thought of yourself in more recent times as a brand? Have you thought about how you market yourself? Because I've, I've seen that you last went on – you last used Twitter in June of 2018, mate. <laughs> so I don't even know if I have Twitter as an app on my phone anymore. <laughs> so it's good to know that the account's still live. It's still live. So, so tell me, how do you manage yourself in this modern era as as a brand, as a sort of a marketable entity these days? How do you go about that, mate? Good question. As I say, I, th- I think we're at the end of the day, we are just a business. Um, we're, we're just a self-employed business um, with no, well, I guess our employees are coaches and things like that in a way. And um, even further outside of that, we're just entertainers. So I think definitely each person has a brand and, and you can certainly, I guess, fast track your career, I think, if you're, if you're smart about um, how you sort of convey your story to people and your story is is everything uh it's it's what you say it's what you it's how you look how you present yourself i guess in a way i mean it's why we're so invested in people like tiger woods you know because it's it's i mean he's obviously an incredible incredible golfer and what he's achieved is sort of unparalleled but he had everything else to go with it. We had the backstory a, a huge kind of sort of like racial figure as well and the style in which he did these things was you know it's never been repeated so I, th- I think if you can have a story then i mean that's what makes one marketable so to speak mm. it's funny how it's funny how easily shockwaves can be sent across sort of the, the the top of the golfing community and i mean that in a sense of like the world went crazy over camillo vajegas and all he did was go on the ground and read his parts you know they're like yeah. oh this guy's crazy like no no he's literally just on the ground <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think you can ever, you can never, as far as your marketability, marketability goes, you can never, you can never substitute just flat out ability. Your brand is just, uh, is just the outward marketability of your identity. I think. Well, in closing, 
what are you thinking and feeling about the next few months then with all this COVID stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's bizarre, isn't it? We, we've never, our generation certainly never seen anything like this before, and it really is just a waiting game, mate. Um, I have got a few things set up here at the house in order to keep me occupied and keep me moving, but as far as playing goes, it's really unpredictable. We don't know if we don't know if we're going to be able to play, or if I'm certainly in my own case going to be able to go back to Aussie because I don't know what the borders, uh, what the restrictions are going to be like and stay like. So I just have to wait and see. Well, uh, Michael, anything in closing there? No, that was going to be my question. I, I, it's so uncertain, isn't it, mate? I mean, you were uh, you talked about uh, being in a slump, but you were certainly in the last few months probably enjoying some some regular success so do you feel like you, you're going to lose momentum or you're not worried about the actual skill part of your game are you you're obviously staying mentally there but but are you worried about what how you're going to be able to hit the ball when you get back out there yeah I, um I, have, I i've got to be really honest there that was one of the first things i actually thought about when we kind of went into this involuntary lockdown was you know am i going to be able to maintain this form and this kind of mojo, I guess, for lack of a better word, that I've got going. Um, I mean, but that's exactly what got me in trouble 18 months ago was was thinking about all these things that I really can't control and, and they're all to do with what my ego believes I, I think I should achieve. And so I really just have to let that go and do the best job I can and what will be will be. Mm, and Andy's got a book for you. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tunes, you got to, you got to read Zen Golf, mate. Get that down you. That is down your alley in a big way. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely give it a read. As you know, I'm, I'm definitely uh, um, I, I love my, my good read, so I'll give it a nudge. What's it called? Zen Golf. Zen Golf. It's real good, man. I think, um, and knowing knowing you, you'll probably end up on a mountain living in like a, a, a bin being real happy. After <laughs> <laughs> I'll just come and live, live with you, mate. That'll be enough of a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. All the best. Go well. Look after yourself. And um, let's hope we can get you back on the course soon so you can keep that good form. Yeah, thanks, gents. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Luke. Appreciate it, buddy. Cheers, boys. Any takeaways from that? Oh, he sounds really relaxed, didn't he? I mean, for a guy that sort of basically his his whole world stopped, he's stuck at home, he's a, he's a sportsman, can't go out and play a sport. He sounded very relaxed and content, and there were some wonderful stories there as well. Mm, he's got a great perspective on the whole thing, and he's quite open about how you know he can actually lose sight of that perspective, which is quite a strange form of honesty. We don't hear a lot. How did you two become friends? Uh, well, coming, he's a couple years younger than me. When I was thirteen, I was trialing up for the under sixteen team for Waikato, um, and he was eleven, and I was paired with him because we were kind of the youngest or a couple of the youngest anyway, and. Um, yeah, play play with them heaps through the junior ranks, and it wasn't. I kind of tapped out of trying to p- chase anything to do with golf. Uh, probably about sort of when I left school, so about eighteen, nineteen. So he's sort of sixteen, seventeen, and that's once I tapped out. He kind of went from being like one of the better ones in the top group to then being, oh, he's really good, and then you see, oh shit, he's winning everything. So yeah, that was kind of we, we kind of just kept in contact, and and I just kind of admired his his golf from afar, and then uh, we sort of reconnected when I came back from the UK, and and yeah, he's like one of my best mates. So yeah, he's he's cool. He's a good dude. He's a good person to have as a friend. And God, he he knows. I mean, he he won't. We didn't go into it then, but he knows so much stuff about like the fine increments of the game. So whenever he's around, I'm always like, hey, uh, can we have a quick chipping lesson? <laughs> yeah, he's he's great. So. Really good stuff. I enjoyed that. And I hope you listen to this. Enjoy that as well. Look after yourself. 
don't go crazy. Uh, we'll see you on the other side of quarantine. Or no, we've got another episode soon. So we'll see you next time. Okay, bye. <laughs>